BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, January 3rd, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So this week I interviewed actor, writer, director, and producer Mark Ruffalo, who is now most famous for his portrayal of Bruce Banner, or the Hulk, in the latest series of Marvel films. But he made his acting career playing roles in a wide variety of critically acclaimed and thought-provoking indie films, like uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Kids Are All Right, and You Can Count on Me, to name just a few. His films have often touched on social issues like same-sex marriage, alternative lifestyles. So essentially, his characters show us how we craft our self-identity in terms of our memories, our values, and our behavior. So maybe it's not so surprising that he's also made waves as an activist. He's worked to stop the process of hydrofracking near his own home. And most recently, he became the spokesperson for Put Solar On It, which is a campaign to encourage the use of solar energy. Here's what he had to say about the current state of the energy industry. Long gone are the days where we just stick a a straw in the ground and beautiful uh, concentrated carbon comes bubbling to the surface. Um, And now we've engaged in this new era of energy extraction, which is extreme which um, is using unconventional methods to extract this carbon, uh, hydrofracking, mountaintop removal, tar sands, um, butamin development, and uh, deep sea drilling. And all of these um, new extraction methods uh, pose much greater and more significant environmental risks. So listening to this, I just had to say, you know, he's so right. (laughs) I mean, it's probably the number one environmental and energy story of our time next to climate change and and the growth of clean energy is all of the new ways that fossil fuel companies have come up with. And they've done it so fast. It's like been the blink of an eye. All these new ways of getting energy because the low-hanging fruit is gone. That's the story in the energy industry. So what are they going to come up with? And this is what they're doing. 
Yeah, one of the things that I was really impressed uh, with him about is the fact that he's not just really passionate about this cause. He's really also very well informed and he digs into the science of it and he respects the fact that you need to understand the science behind the cause in order to most effectively, you know, figure out how to how to bring it to light. Um, so I was really impressed with with just how much he knew about about this issue um, and how it's informed his decision making and, and what he's chosen to do about it. Yeah. Seconded by me. <laughs> Absolutely. But before we get to the interview, Chris, you had a piece that you wanted to chat about to put things into context. So let me see if I've got this right. President Obama has successfully inserted climate change into the national conversation by talking about it at you know his some of his speeches, State of the Union addresses, etc. But at the same time, he seems to be backing hydrofracking. Well, what, yeah. And, and so what I wanted to draw attention to is Suzanne Goldenberg, who writes for The Guardian, one of our partners, great environmental writer, did a marvelous job of putting last year, 2013, into perspective um, from, this, from the angle of what happened in climate, what happened in energy, what happened in the environment. And I just wanted to go over what she had to say, um, because I think it puts your interview with Mark Ruffalo into important context. So what she points out is there really was real progress. It was a good year in many ways on climate. Uh, Particularly, President Obama finally took a stand. He was terrified to even talk about the subject for some two years. Uh, That changed. He took a stand and he directed the Environmental Protection Agency to really do something. And, you know, the wheels are in motion. Uh, Meanwhile, we saw climate change actually turn out to be a, a winning political issue in the state of Virginia. This is something we covered in our interview with Michael Mann. Uh, and uh, renewable energy in the U.S. continues to grow and grow and grow. So all this is good news. But then if you shift to this other set of issues that Ruffalo highlights, getting energy in these newer, riskier ways, that's where all the tensions are. And on those topics, the tensions just increased in 2013. We had all kinds of new research published about new risks of fracking, not even the old risk. We thought it was just water contamination. Now we're worried about fugitive methane. Now we're worried about earthquakes and a lot of new science is coming out on this. Meanwhile, a lot of environmentalists getting increasingly uh, frustrated with President Obama because he wants an all of the above energy approach that includes uh, fracking and natural gas. Uh, and when it comes to tar sands, another thing that Ruffalo highlights, they're sure not, they're still not sure what he's going to do or not going to do on Keystone XL. So that's where all the controversies are. So we made progress in some ways. But we opened up a whole new sort of can of worms, also. Yeah, I mean, I think you know a lot of people find his politics a little bit frustrating because he often does seem to wait and uh, to act. You know, that's been he's been criticized for that in a lot of different situations, um, and certainly with the Keystone pipeline. I mean, that's something that I think we all thought there would be an answer to much sooner. Uh, it's a complicated issue, and um, you know, I, I, it's I, yeah, I, I it's part of me you know, wants to stay away from some of these debates because I, I feel like the science is so new and it's constantly changing and it's really hard to keep up with, you know, these, these very fracturing uh, debates. Well, and also, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a debate between two groups of people, both of whom I think are very well informed. I mean, you know, there's, a, let's put it this way, there's a very colorable case uh, advanced by serious people like Michael Levy of the Council on Foreign Relations, in defense of the all of the above energy strategy, there's a lot of arguments in favor of it. There's also very articulate people, Bill McKibben, Mark Ruffalo, people who are saying, no, you know, we need to go all the way to solar and 
wind and all renewable. We need to go there faster. There is no bridge, you know, from natural gas. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, and I don't think we know fully how it's going to shake out, but it, it, it's becoming the big environmental tension. So I guess one thing that is, as you mentioned, is a good thing is that we are shifting away from simply denying the fact that climate change even exists or might be associated with the activities of man um, and moving towards how that might be happening and what we can do, what we need to do in order to stop it. So with that, let's take a short break and come back with my interview uh, with Mark Ruffalo. This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. This is our first show of 2014, and I want to start it with a huge thanks to everyone who has listened to, shared, or otherwise supported us since we launched in September. We've come a long way in just 15 episodes. Last week, we passed a quarter of a million downloads, which just blows me away. If you're new to the show, make sure to check out some past episodes. We've got shows that range from talking to a woman, Marsha Ivins, who spent 55 days in space, to Sylvia Earle, who spent almost a year underwater. From particle physicist Simon Singh talking about The Simpsons to psychologist Jonathan Haidt explaining why your political opponents hate you. We have big plans for 2014, so stay tuned. And from all of us here, thanks for listening. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Mark Ruffalo. Thank you, and um, I'm really uh, happy to be here. We're delighted to have you. Um, And because the Climate Desk, which is our sort of mother organization, is really interested in global warming, we wanted to start off the conversation by talking about the nonprofit that you've started and the reasons behind it. So in 2010, you founded um, a nonprofit called Water Defense. And from the website, it says that the organization works to create a world where water is safe to drink, a world where the oceans don't rise and the economy is powered by clean, sustainable sources of energy. So what moved you to start this organization? Well, um, you know, I, I, my deep involvement in this whole uh, question and this, this, this whole kind of movement uh, started um, in a little town called Calicoon in upstate New York, uh, of all places. And um, two things were happening, happening concurrently. Uh, one was hydrofracking um, was coming to the place where I was raising three uh, small children. And the other was a um, preponderance of huge storms that were bringing uh, record levels of flooding. In uh, a 10-year period, I had seen the 50-year flood, the 100-year flood, the 250-year flood, and the 500-year flood. <laughs> um, when someone says the 50-year flood or any other number higher than that, what they mean is, is that flood's only supposed to come every 50 years. And we were being inundated by one flood after the next that was breaking all uh, annual records for uh, since the beginning of time. And it was happening in a very short period of time. Um, and that was alarming, not only alarming to me, but also alarming to all of the um, farmers who used to make fun of me for talking about uh, climate change and global warming. Water defense uh, was a way to talk about um, hydrofracking, specifically in its inception. Um, but not only hydrofracking, but also all extreme energy extraction methods. 
uh, long gone are the days where we just stick a, a straw on the ground and beautiful uh, concentrated carbon comes bubbling to the surface. Um, and now we've engaged in this new era of energy extraction, which is extreme, which um, is using unconventional methods to extract this carbon, uh, hydrofracking, mountaintop removal, tar sands, um, butamine development, and uh, deep sea drilling. And all of these um, new extraction methods uh, pose much greater and more significant environmental risks. It also signals to us that, um, that we are running out of uh, easily or conventionally um, obtained fossil fuels. This is significant uh, to water because all of these, uh, except for the deep water drilling, um, basically destroy uh, table water, ground ground table water, drinking water, fresh water. Uh, and you know, I saw a common threat uh, to this most essential resource um, by all of these extreme energy extractions and began to feel that um, there wasn't really anyone in the space that was particularly um, uh, going at it from that angle and was connecting all of those extreme energy extraction methods to, uh, to water. Yeah, I mean, I'm by no means an, an expert in, in energy, but it does seem that the oil companies or the energy companies are really focusing on more and more risky ways of extracting energy rather than um, trying to expand things that seem to me as a layperson to be less risky, like wind and solar energy. Um, do you have any ideas of why they would spend all this money, you know, trying to get at energy sources that seem hard to get at, um, hydrofracking, tar sands, et cetera, instead of like, Harnessing the sun. Well, um, you got to look at you know the business. You, uh, you're basically asking uh, an automotive company to start building bicycles. It's not in their shareholders' interest to 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 move from the fossil fuel paradigm to renewable energy. Um, ultimately, one could argue that it is, but. Their mandate, and and believe me, I've uh, and people I work with have have asked them, why don't you guys? You're in the energy business. Why don't you move to renewable energy? Uh, and they basically said it will never happen. Their mandate is to extract as much carbon in the earth that is available to them. That's their mandate as a business. And. That's why you have Rex Tillerson saying, well, you know, this isn't really something, you know, we have to worry about, you know, now they're finally agreeing that, that because they're smart people. I mean, these people aren't stupid and they, they don't want to come off as stupid. Uh, so they can't deny that climate change is happening for too long. But what they're doing now is pivoting to <laughs> that it's technology that will take us out of this. And they're right, but it's not carbon sequestration technology. It's actually the technology that's become available to us in the, in the 21st century, which is renewable energy. And 
this technology has oddly and ironically been given to us by a beautiful fossil fuel industry that um, gave us this this concentrated carbon for 70 years, 100 years. But now, and I thank them for that, but now we're at the threshold of a renewable energy, another technical revolution, uh, another uh, industrial revolution, and that is the clean energy revolution and the abundance that it promises us once we make that transition. But we have a legacy um, industry, the fossil fuel industry, that's doing everything they possibly can to keep that from happening. But the writing's on the wall. This transition's going to happen with or without them. It's going to happen um, for for us, uh, whether we do it gracefully and with some will, or we do it kicking and screaming, but it's going to happen. So what does the Water Defense Organization do in order to make this happen? Well, you know, water defense, you know, the, the way this has been happening and, and what, you know, the, the, the revolution that happened in, in New York State as far as how the environmental movement uh, moves forward, the future of the environmental movement is, is kind of uh, based on the model that happened in New York. The great um, secret of the environmental movement uh, and the great sort of good news and good story and and positivity is coming out of what happened in New York in the hydrofracking fight. We were able to build out this grassroots movement that was uh, very involved along the way of people who um, were living in the areas that were being targeted for this. And the way we were able to do that is through this vibrant, beautiful thing, the democratizing tool called the Internet. And we were able to connect people in a way that, you know, they, we really couldn't do 10 years ago. And, you know, we've all made the mistake of, of, of turning over our, uh, the keys to our environment to the big, and big green organizations. Um, and what's happened is, is, is they, that system has been game to the point where they become incredibly ineffectual. And, um, what you saw happen in New York state, uh, and the wins that we've made here, um, came out of our absolute refusal to allow this kind of backroom deals uh, to be made on behalf of our communities. Um, what we were seeing since the early 90s was that any environmental win was uh, short-lived, um, insignificant, and was only, um, only sort of won on a, on a very marginal level. And they tried to employ the same kind of backroom dealing in New York State. And all of these little groups popped up. Um, Catskill Mountain Keepers, um, Citizens for Sane Energy, uh, Frack Action, um, New Yorkers Against Hydrofracking. All of these little tiny community-based organizations um, operating basically independently, but under the same um, the same sort of banner of of we don't want to see this coming to our community. Uh, 
we created this giant coalition and we were able to first of all stop the big green organizations from uh, doing these backroom deals with industry where they came into them at a completely compromised from a completely compromised place um, to basically saying no to hydrofracking in New York State now why that's significant to water defense was um, you know what I started to feel was you can't uh, you can't say no to something unless you can't credibly say no to something unless you can come up with an alternative that is equal to or better uh, than what is being offered. Um, I, I mean, I don't think you could do it in in the most powerful way unless you use that model. And so, you know, we've developed this stick and carrot. Um, sort of strategy it sort of just came out this way that um yes we're going to beat the hell out of you uh about what you're trying to do to destroy our communities but at the same time we're going to offer you a carrot we're going to offer you um uh, an alternative that that we would be happy with that that would save the state money that would create jobs that would um save our natural resources our precious natural resources like open spaces and our beautiful clean pristine water and land and and these things are worth something and so we're not only going to beat the hell out of you with the stick that is our organizational um, dynamics and power and uh, the science driving um, this movement, but we're also going to offer you a way out. What is that way out? The way out is to move to 100 um, percent renewable energy, wind, water and sun. And so um, as this fight was building in New York State and, and, you know, my ass was out there front and center, (laughs) you know, really early on on this fight um, because I lived there, because I was raising kids there, because it was touching my life. Um, I made it a point. I I started to feel like this wouldn't be possible unless I could come up with an alternative. So I started looking around and I ended up in California um, with uh, a man named Professor Mark Jacobson, who was a leading uh, civil engineer and climatologist at um, Stanford. And I had seen a white paper that he had done, a very kind of broad, um, contemplative thing that 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 didn't really get into the meat and potatoes of it, but but brushed on this idea of moving the United States to 100% renewable energy in the near 20 or 30 years. That one was by 2050. And so I went to him and I said, uh, "Hey, Mark, brother." Could you do the same plan? No one's done this. Uh, it was unbelievable. Everywhere I looked, there, no one had made a, a plan for the United States of what it would look like to move to renewable energy uh, in any real specific way. And this is the guy who had the data to do it. And so I went to him and I said, hey, Mark, could you make a plan for New York State based on this this broad concept that the United States could actually do it and do it in my, in my lifetime, hopefully, and definitely in my kid's lifetime. And he said to me, well, 
I'm in midterms right now. This is a very intriguing idea, um, but I, um, I, I don't have time. Maybe, maybe I can write you a couple paragraphs. I said, listen, buddy, I'll take anything. Uh, the next day in my email uh, box, I had 40 pages of what now is the feasibility study on moving New York State from um, fossil fuels to 100% renewable by 2030. And that has been vetted. Um, it's been uh, published in Scientific America. And now we are working on 50 plans for 50 states. Wow. That's amazing. And, and so is that... It's historical. Is, yeah. Does it, so does your foundation actually fund some of the work or are you more interested in distributing the information? Water defense is more on the on the stick side of the work I'm doing here, um, and 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 more you know focused on 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 the water basically. But I started an, another organization with a, a lot of other people, uh, Mark Jacobson being one of them, called the Solutions Project. And the Solutions Project, um, which is the SolutionsProject.org, is basically these. Um, these plans and how to get them, how to accelerate um, our inevitable move to renewable energy by using science, culture, and business together. And um, we are about to drop 50 plans for 50 states. We have uh, New York, California, Washington right now um, on deck. And uh, in the next few months, we will be dropping 50 plans for 50 states. And these are plans that are um, that are uh, specifically designed to address the specific issues for each state and basically shows the state how to get there, um, you know, five year chunks at a time and um, how much money they'll be saving, um, how many jobs they'll how many how many jobs it'll create and also um, um, how many lives it'll save. You're just cutting back on pollution. I mean, people, the other big conversation that isn't really talked about is how many people um, the fossil fuels industry kills every year. They kill 2 million people a year worldwide, 200,000 in, in the United States every year. Do you mean in the process of extraction or some? No, no just, just using fossil fuels, just, just the use of fossil fuels. Some of that is extraction and, and, and what is, be, you know, from black lung uh, to to accidents that happen, to explosions, to all those things, and then and then a lot of that is just just what's killing people with asthma, with with heart um, disease, with lung disease. There, that's a real number, and that you know anyone could Google this and see that there's two million people dying a year from fossil fuels, from our use of fossil fuels, from burning fossil fuels. You don't hear any, any stories of solar panels um, being lethal. No, a, ba a, a, a spill for a solar panel is a sunny day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was uh, just the other night, I was rewatching Rain Man and, and, you know, it's an older movie. And, and yet there's this one scene where they're driving along, you know, a highway and there's this huge wind farm. And it, it made me realize, like, you know, these wind farms have been around for a long time, especially in California, yet they don't seem to be growing. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, is, is part of, and I've, and I've heard, you know, people say, look, I don't want to, you know, it ruins the view and it ruins the landscape in terms of the aesthetics. Have you had people talk about, you know, whether or not aesthetics are something that we should even be thinking about with these alternative uses? I mean, it seems like, obviously, 
you know, the, the, the risk and the, the, the costs of extracting fossil fuels, the costs of just the aesthetic look of, of these other energy sources shouldn't compare. But is that an argument that you're hearing from people? Well, yeah, uh, you know, the argument is always, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about mm, sort of progress as far as what we need, what we're using, what our appetite is for energy, and then the neg- the down the negatives of that. Now, you have people say, "Hey, listen, if you want to turn the lights on, then you know some people's water is going to have to suffer." Uh, some areas are going to have to be industrialized. There's, you know, some people's um, air is going to have to suffer. That's just the cost of, of modernity. So they've been giving us that argument. You know, we might just have to go to war. If you want energy, then we're going to have to go to war. It's just the way it is. Grow up, you little crybaby. Now, we've been told that for many, many years on, uh, on, from about fossil fuels. And, you know, people are pretty willing to accept it for the most part. Uh, as long as it's not happening to me, you know, uh, you know, I, I like to turn my lights on. Sorry. What's a little war here and there? What's a little disease? What's a little, you know, what's a little contamination? As long as it's happening in another country, what does it matter to me? But those arguments are becoming less tenable because now it is happening to us. And uh, then, you know, it opens up another question. Well, what are the alternatives? Oh, well, the alternatives are wind farms. The alternatives are, um, you know, solar panels. The alternatives are uh, water and tidal and all these other things that, you know, maybe some people for a long time didn't feel like they could live with aesthetically. But when you're given the choice between having a drill pad in your backyard or a windmill, it becomes very uh, <laughs> it becomes very easy for most people to go for the windmill, and this is just you know it, it's if you remember I, I liken it to our move from film to digital. When we first looked at digital, we thought it was too clear. It wasn't pretty. You know, we liked the warm, fuzzy quality of film. And now, you know, next year's big news will be that um, um, Steven Spielberg has has decided to go back to use film. You know, it's it's the more we see it, the less offensive it's going to be because our understanding of it is going to be greater. You know, do we want our kids to be suffering from asthma or do we want to, you know, accept um, a wind farm um, off our coast? Do we want to live with global warming or do we want to see solar panels on people's homes? Um, You know, that's really ultimately what the choice is going to be. And I have a feeling most people, most reasonable people are going to go with the wind farm over the oil derrick or hydrofracking derrick in their backyards. It, it does seem like the more rational choice. Um, and But one of the things that sort of uh, really disappointed me in the last few years was 
this problem with Solyndra, you know, having President Obama back one particular company and then that company kind of going out of business. I mean, I know that this is part of, you know, you have a new industry, you're going to have a lot of failures before you have a lot of successes. Um, but do you have any feeling of, you know, whether the, the, the fact that we invested in a company like Solyndra and then it very publicly went bankrupt, how that has affected the public perception of renewable energy? Um, you know, it, it was, it was, no, I don't think it, it, it did in some regards, you know, as, as a, as a nice little, uh, item that could be used as a political football and it was used, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It, it, they, it was used effectively, but no, those things tend to, you know, it's, it's like Bush coming out and saying the Terry Schiavo case was the, was this kind of the, the Waterloo of the liberal class, you know, and yeah, it was used effectively for a short period of time, but it ended up being an embarrassment, it ended up being completely ineffectual over the long run. And it's going to be, it's the same thing with Solyndra. The fact of the matter is, we subsidize this. We've been subsidizing the fossil fuel industry for 70 years. It's cost us $700 billion. And all we've seen is the price of fossil fuels going up and up 12% above inflation every single year. In direct opposite, as far as solar goes and wind goes, Every dollar we've spent in those industries, we've seen the cost come down and down and down. There's a lot of really wonderful graphs um, that display this phenomenon. And um, you can only foist the lie that um, these, these, that solar is expensive, that it can't be done, um, that it's a boondoggle for our nation for only so long before reality catches up with you. The reality is, is we have been giving the fossil fuel industry a free ride for 70 years. Um, it's, uh, some would argue that that's been a good thing. The fact of the matter is, is that the price that we actually pay for carbon fuels is probably triple what we're actually seeing at the pump and on our energy bills. And what we're paying for renewable energy is getting cheaper and cheaper. In seven countries right now, it's cheaper to use renewable energy than to build out a fossil fuel in, uh, infrastructure. And that trend is going to win the day. It's only going to get cheaper. And it's only going to get better. And it's only going to be the place that we're moving to, I promise you. As I am here today, this is happening. It's already happening throughout the world. And the only thing that's keeping it from happening, and you'll see that in, our, in, the, in Mark Jacobson's work, is political resistance. 85% of Americans are ready to start making this move. All the polling is on, is on our side on this. And, and to get those kinds of numbers, you, you have to really be deep, digging deep into um, ideological um, uh, enemy lines. And this is, this is an idea that's come. People relate it to energy independence, real energy independence. Uh, they relate it to um, to being cleaner. They relate relate it to being cheaper. They relate it to independence as far as we as people and be having the capability of creating our own energy, 
storing our own energy, selling our own energy to who and to who we want and when we want to. This is a extremely democratized um, system. It's a system that Americans love. Libertarians, this is their wet dream. And it's the last decentralization. I mean, we're living in the era of decentralization. What you could say about the time that we're living in is one day people historically will call this the time of decentralization and energy decentralization is the final uh, frontier for democratization. We've certainly seen it in the media and entertainment industry as, you know, so many people are putting up their own work as opposed to waiting for a studio to put it together. Uh, So, you know, it's great to hear you be so passionate about this issue. And I've heard you say in a previous interview that one of the responsibilities of an actor is to be a teacher. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and how that relates to your advocacy. Well, you know, I, for good or bad, you know, as an actor, as a celebrity, as, as someone who's in the in the public eye, you you have access to many more people than than most people do um, for good and bad. Uh, I wish Mark Jacobson um, had uh, the access to people that I do, but um, that just isn't the, the culture that we're living in. And uh, this is why we sort of, for the Solutions Project, came up with this model of uh, science, business, and culture standing together uh, to, to accelerate the inevitable uh, change to renewable energy. And you can do what you want with it. You know, you can, you can sell a product. You can um, bring a fad in. You can, you can have influence over the way people dress or talk or or what they're listening to. And then you can also affect change or carry a message. Um, and uh, that's kind of what I decided to do with this, this great blessing that I've been given uh, uh, to be successful in, in the forum that I, I'm working in. And um, I, you know, whether you like it or not, you, you, you have that that power. And I, I see it as a huge responsibility. And um, yeah, go ahead and sell the products. Go, go do everything you, you want to do. But, um, you know, also maybe maybe have an eye on, on doing some giving back a little bit. Um, and the way I see that you give back is by, is by breaking through what is normally a pretty much corporate dominated stream of information to people um, uh, by using your voice to to also give them uh, another point of view that isn't simply um, trying to sell a product, but is also has um, a cultural and societal message that uh, you believe to be pos- positive. I mean, I find it really interesting that, you know, you've chosen instead of being the spokesperson of, say, for example, one of the big green organizations that we talked about earlier, um, you know, you've chosen the more grassroots approach and to sort of, you know, spearhead your own organization. And I think that's really admirable. Well, you know, I, I sometimes I feel like when they use a celebrity, first of all, celebrities are used um, as a fundraising tool mostly um, for, for the big green organizations a lot of times. Um, and I've been doing this too long and have had too much skin in the game to, to just be that. 
And I also, what I saw was that those organizations weren't as effective as um, the people uh, on the ground. Uh, they didn't have, they weren't as issue focused um, as the people on the ground. Uh, they didn't have the sense of urgency that the people on the ground had. And they weren't great at carrying the voice of those people on the ground. They had a lot of, um, they were bound up. They, they sat at the, the foot of power in a lot of ways. A lot of their power came from the connections they had with other people in power. But they didn't, and when you do that, you're sort of um, out of touch a little bit. And, you know, I, I ended up in these communities because I was living in one, you know. Um, and so I ended up talking to the people living in these communities. And I started to see that there was a disconnect between, you know, what I was hearing on the ground and what I was actually seeing in action. And it just became easier for me to, to kind of be more independent and I'll do anything for them. You know, I, if you look and I've, I've done for Sierra club, I've worked for, um, and I've done work for NRDC. I'm very, work very close with them still. Um, I think they're, they're really, they are powerful organizations and they, they, we, our work complements each other, but my work is really with people. And, um, that's where I draw my energy from, and that's where I feel uh, most comfortable. I, I don't, I don't necessarily feel comfortable in the halls of uh, the lobbies of politicians. You know, although I've done plenty of that, I, um, I, I think the the system has been gamed to such a point that um, it's almost impossible to make the changes that we need to make uh, as quickly as we need to make them by any other way than rousing people to action and, and to force um, the, the status quo to, uh, to make these changes basically from the bottom up. I, I do think it's a bottom up, you know, treetops to, to tree roots, grass tops to grass roots um, uh, kind of action that has to happen. And so my, my place in that huge, you know, network of so many people, I'm just a small, tiny piece of this incredibly uh, complex movement that's happening all over the world, not just here in the United States. And that's, that's where I find my place in it. You know, we often talk on this show about how we want the role that science plays in informing policy to get larger and larger, you know, that, that it's important for us to um, look at science when we're trying to make policy decisions. Hello. <laughs> um, but I also think that art has a big role to play, too, because art can change hearts and minds in some ways much more easily than, than or much more quickly than some you know dry scientific fact. So, I mean, do you see a trend or do you see a direction in which, you know, we've, we've, we've seen some documentary films, for example, that have been very successful in, in the last decade um, in, in terms of informing people about issues of inequality or race or the environment. Um, do you see a role for yourself as a, an artist in terms of producing a work that could also change minds? Yeah, I, um, I do. And, uh, you know, I've been mulling it over 
an issue's got to mature to a place that that story can be told without it being uh, smacking as a polemic. Um, uh, a great um, example of that is The Kids Are All Right. Now, you know, that movie, I think, uh, had a, a significant place in the culture um, and, and at a point when the culture was ready to hear it. Um, that's the way art works, you know. Art, art sort of comes on uh, out of the culture and, and you'll have some st- things that are ahead of their time, you know, that are sort of the harbinger of, of what's to come. And then you'll have tipping point pieces of art that all of a sudden the culture is ready to hear this message focused in this particular story in this way that uh, that's released into the world. And it, it, it's some, it's, it's like a fruit, you know, it, it takes time to develop and, and, and takes time to be ripe. And then, and then it happens and you don't know where it's going to happen or why it's going to happen. Um, but it, it does, you know, it's like coming home or, or, um, apocalypse now, or, you know, it, it takes time for, uh, for the gestation of that really complex um sort of issue like gay marriage and and having you know kids uh between two um gay spouses and being able to talk about it in the culture in a way that the culture is ready to receive it and i feel this is going to go the same way i hope i can only hope that i'm part of it um i and that uh that that it happens sooner rather than later, that it doesn't take 20 years. Um, but, you know, it's already happening graphically, you you know, uh, and that's going to be a big thing. That's something that I'm working on a lot is, is graphically showing it. Um, I'm working with Jason Silva. You probably know him. He came out of uh, Al Gore's um, uh, climate change um, movement and, um, and uh, television station. Uh, this guy does the most incredible um, short, uh, short subject videos on on modernism and and awe and these incredibly deep uh, philosophical questions about why we're here. Uh, and I want to uh, we're we're partnering to do some stuff on um, this beautiful concept of the abundance that will be um, manifested to us once we move to renewable energy. That's great. I look forward to seeing it. Um, you know, yeah, it is, it is amazing that, you know, we saw our first African-American president or our first female president on television before um, before he came to the Oval Office. Um, yes. So you know, hopefully the same will be true for renewable energy. So what do you think the environmental movement is missing in terms of its message? Why isn't it getting um, getting its, its, its ideas across? We don't we're not getting, you know, we're not getting the the we're not getting the messaging about what how wonderful a world we're going to be living in when we make this change. You know, yes, climate change is brutal and it's scary and it and it and it's happening and 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 people were you know it's going to be devastating to pe- to people's lives if we stay on the the course we're going. But on the other side of that. Which, which the environmental movement hasn't done a great job uh, of doing, is talking about the beauty of making this change, what it will mean in our lives, you know? 
the fact that we won't have to send people to their deaths in these long rolling wars to protect our energy interests abroad. Uh, those people will stay here in the United States with their families. Trillions and trillions of dollars that we spend to engage in those conflagrations throughout the world will stay here and go to our schools. They'll go to our, they'll go to our churches. They'll go to our infrastructure. They'll go to our communities. We can have amazing public works of art. We can have more beautiful parks. We can have um, more wonderful oceanside um, uh, promenades. There's just so much abundance that will be freed up to us as far as money goes. The other thing is, is, is they don't know that what it'll look like to walk outside and have there be no smog. What it'll look like to have cars that don't make any noise or have any exhaust come out of them. Uh, what it'll what it'll be like to have the two million two million people a year that we lose to pollution still walking around on the planet to be enjoyed and loved and cherished. This is probably one of the most exciting times for us um, because not only uh, will we have all those wonderful things to look at, but for the first time in, in human history, we're actually at a place, technologically speaking, where we can make this, this transition. And the amount of money and resources that we pour into this fossil fuel infrastructure, which has been a, an appendage to us, like uh, a third leg that we're dragging around, will we'll be freed up. And no longer will we be worrying about having to extract energy, but we'll be just harvesting what's already pouring on us every single day. And for a long time, we weren't, we weren't, we weren't technologically there, but now we are. And it's actually, economically speaking, the best thing that we can do. The reason you see IKEA and Walmart and all of these other huge multinational corporations um, moving towards renewable energy is because it's a stable energy source. It's good for their business. They don't. They can look 20 years down the line and see what it's going to cost them for their energy. Right now, they, the, the market of energy is so unstable that no business can do that. And that's significant. And that's why these people are moving to renewable energy, not because they're tree huggers, but because it's good for business. And that's the good news about where we are today. I mean, it's exciting, man. I mean, it's it's really exciting. And it, once it happens, you guys, it's going to happen fast. Once the floodgate is open, it's going to start happening quick. And I'm telling you, it's already happening. I mean, the battery technology is there with Tesla. In, in two years, three years, Tesla will have the $27,000 electric car that will go 300 miles in a 15-minute charge. Um, not only will they have it, but every other automotive maker will have it. Solar panels will be cheaper than uh, per kilowatt hour than any fossil fuel. I mean, this stuff, once, once it happens, happens, it's going to happen quick. Mark my words. I have one last question for you. You know, this is our first show of 2014. And, you know, it's a time in which people are making resolutions and um, starting out new. You know, what can our listeners do if they want to make a resolution to help this fight for renewable energy? What do you think they should they could do in order to uh, make that happen more quickly? Oh, man, I'm so glad you asked because there's actually two things that I'm working on. It's a lot of other people. Um, one of them is uh, a Solar Mosaic is doing um, a, a Put Solar On It campaign. 
And um, we're inviting people uh, to make a resolution to put solar on it anywhere, anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the world. And Solar Mosaic, which is um, a crowd, they figured out how to crowdsource fund renewable energy projects. Um, we'll finance this thing for you. And, um, and so um, I'm putting solar, I've made a resolution to put solar on my kid's school. Um, you can make a resolution to put solar on your, on your garage, on your house, on your kid's school, on a community center, on your business, on your, any, anything you can put, uh, anything that has a roof or a, a little spit of land that gets a little bit of sun, we'll put solar on it for you. And what it is, is it's a toolkit to, uh, to, to, you know, find the site, um, see if it's solar worthy. Uh, solar Mosaic will put you in touch with the people who will put it up there and Solar Mosaic will finance it for you through crowdsource funding. Um, this is a way for people to really begin to make the change to 100% renewable. Um, and that's available to them at www.putsolaronit.org or you can go to Solar Mosaic's website or Mosaic's website. Uh, and the other thing is, is this really cool thing that came um, out of uh, Joe Gantz, the documentary filmmaker's uh, beautiful teaming brain, was to do um, 100%. Um, it's called the 100% Resolution. And we're going to be kicking off a, um, a little uh, social media campaign with uh, myself, uh, hopefully some other uh, cultural people, figures, and um, a bunch of little organizations to, uh, to do um, 10 things. We'll give you 10, a list of 10 things to do to, um, to move towards 100% renewable. And it's 100% uh, uh, renewable uh, resolution. And so we'll be we'll be tweeting out things, you know, from changing your a lot of this stuff goes across the board. I mean, simple things like composting is actually moving towards 100 uh, percent renewable energy, um, changing your uh, light bulbs to LEDs by by um, by uh, cutting back on the energy you use, which will be a big part of making that change to putting solar on it to um to uh, not driving your car four times a week, to making commitments to, to use your bike, to use public transportation, to not fly for a certain period of time, to not eat um, meat for a certain period of time. And, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll tweet these out, we'll put them on our websites, we'll put them on our Facebook, and people can choose from a whole list of things with a whole list of organizations uh, to, to do something to, mo to make this, this inevitable change. Well, that's great. Those are very concrete, doable resolutions. So thank you for those. And thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Mark Ruffalo. Hey, my pleasure. I love talking to you guys and I love your show. So, Andre, I really love this interview. It's a great interview. and You did a wonderful job of it. And I am so impressed, uh, not only with how much Mark Ruffalo has mastered energy policy, but also uh, with the really inspiring part of the interview where he does something that I think is extremely rare, which is that he helps us visualize that which is, you know, stunning and inspiring and even kind of beautiful 
about a clean energy future. And he's right that that's a really winning message. It's not a message that we hear enough of. And maybe too many scientists and even too many activists are down in the weeds and the details and all the numbers and all the, you know, joules and kilowatt hours and everything. And they're not actually seeing uh, the big picture on the horizon. And I love that as a, as an actor and artist, maybe he can do that. Yeah, I love that part too. And I have to say that I'm very proud of myself for avoiding any Hulk jokes through the entire interview. <laughs> I did not make any jokes about the Hulk. And, uh, you know, I'm going to renege a little bit on that and just say, you know, he's, he's now most famous for playing this really angry character. But so many of his roles in the past have been uh, people that have this kind of, um, you know, optimism. And so it, see, it sounds like that really comes, that's a really the core part of his personality. And uh, I think that it's something that we can learn from because so often when we talk about environmental issues, it's the negative, it's the negative, it's the negative. And really that doesn't move people to act as much as the promise of something really positive. So I hope he's successful very soon at at reframing this conversation. Yes. You cannot focus on the negative. That's what, um, you know, which, which Jedi told Anakin Skywalker (laughs) that. Don't focus on the negative. Okay, so now we've had our nerd moment for the show. (laughs) (laughs) So just to remind our listeners, uh, those of you that do want to get involved, uh, the websites that he's mentioned that I think are definitely worth, um, you know, going to and and becoming active on. uh, One of them is called joinmosaic.com slash put solar on it. Uh, And you can go there and you can you can figure out how to add solar to your life. And then, of course, there's his own foundation, which is waterdefense.org. So join mosaic com slash put solar on it and waterdefense.org. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.